just past 7 o'clock, up, up, and away. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Another huge show on tap for you tonight. Ira, we're getting amped up for football. I've got a fantasy draft a little bit later in the evening. I think everyone's really excited, and there's so much else to talk about. We're going to get into that first because you had a busy week. So tell us, where have you been? Well, I had a busy week, and I know everybody. We're we're taping this show, and it's going to be on a. Uh, it's going to. I don't know if it's going to air online. Or we're taping it early Tuesday, uh, Monday morning. Um, um, you know, thoughts and prayers with everyone with the hurricane. Uh, I find sports to be when stressful times come. It's it's something to relax. I remember when my when my grandmother was pass, about to pass away. Uh, we sat for a weekend and just watched Tiger Woods the entire weekend. She was very sick and dying, and it was just wonderful to spend time with her and watch sports, and that sort of took, uh, and she just enjoyed it so much. And, and I think that sometimes where you can just be focused on stress and focused on stress, and I've found so many times that just the idea, that's why I don't like the whole bad part of sports. I like the exciting part of sports and the teams and the competition and, and watching great performances. And I think it takes you away from, from worrying about things, and, and, it's, and it's a good relief in terms of, of following and, and just, uh, just, just relaxing and taking away from the real serious things, which, of course, are hurricanes and death and all these and damage. And I, so I'm glad we're doing the show, and hopefully people can watch, listen to it online, or we might air it later this week. So I'm not sure when this is going to air, but uh, I'm just excited to talk about sports this week. And, and I'm in New York, so I was at the U.S. Open uh, tennis uh, two days this week, actually three days this week, and I was at the Penn State football game on Saturday. So you, yeah, you've logged a couple of um, a couple of miles. I think you took a baseball game in as well, right? Well, that was an easy one because <laughs> <laughs> I went to tennis on Wednesday and Thursday, and the city field is located exactly right next to uh, uh, the U.S. Open Tennis Center, and I left a Kyrgyz match at seven o'clock, and I was at the stadium at seven ten. So by just walking from the from leaving one stadium to the other, uh, and so that was great that I could go to both see both games. I saw the Mets play the Cubs, and then on Saturday drove to Penn State, and then came back Sunday for the for the tennis. A heck of a weekend, uh, a heck of a week for you, I should say, Ira, and that's why uh, that's why we do the show. It's Ira on Sports. Let's get into tennis. Um, I know that this didn't work out so well for the Americans, but still, it was uh, pretty good for for you to take in. Well, I think that. This is this was an interesting tour, tournament so far. We've already had the first week, so they played uh, the first four rounds, and it's it's always the whole idea of the U.S. Open and, and is that there's the first week when they're playing on there's 128 players and men's and women's, and they're playing on 30 different courts, uh, activity everywhere, and then the second week is they just really use the Louis Armstrong Stadium, which is brand new, and then the Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is the main 18,000-seat stadium for the matches, and then really just the Ashe Stadium. So there's literally two tournaments, the first-week tournaments and the second-week tournaments. Uh, but unfortunately, none of the Americans made it into the second-week tournament it, for the American men. Uh, this was, a, I think, a very disappointing tournament. Uh, they seven Americans lost in the first round, including Jack Sock, Sam Query, and number twenty-six Taylor Fritz. Not one American made it to the round of sixteen out of a hundred. So they started one hundred twenty-eight down to sixteen. So not one American made it. Um, Dennis Kudla won two rounds but lost to Djokovic. Bradley Kahn uh, made it to the second round but lost to Nishikori. And uh, TFO, who we've had on the show twice, uh, had a good win in the first round against Karlovic and had a five-set match in Ash against Sasha Zare, which could have really cemented him as, as a 
just it would have been a great, great win to play on Ash to in the main stadium against the number six seed, and he lost in five sets in the second round. And Tennis Sandgren, who's another good young American, he won two rounds but lost to Schwartzman in the third. Uh, Isner, who is the top-ranked American, he lost to Silic in the third round. And uh, the, I guess the one excitement of this whole tournament was Jensen Brooksby, who was going to Baylor to play tennis as a college tennis player, beat a former top-five player in the world, Thomas Burdick, who was been injured, so it was really a hollow victory to some extent. But then he was leading in his next match and uh, blew a, a two-set-to-none lead, uh, and so he was knocked out in the second round. But he's a very young, exciting tennis player. Uh, but it was not to have any Americans in the round of 16. And I was just hoping, I'm not saying the Americans were going to win this tournament. They're not beating Joe Cook, Sutter, Nadal. But just to get to maybe like the quarters, is that too much to ask? The American men are really struggling. And then when you look at some of these other countries, uh, Russia with Sasha Zarev, Medvedev, and this uh, Andrei Rublev, they're <laughs> the great young uh, 20-year-old players that have become dominant on the tour. Uh, American men have to really step it up in terms of there's got to be, I hope TFO is that person. Just, you're just waiting for somebody to take the mantle, but it's just getting worse, not better. Ira, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, what happened with your buddy, uh, Roger Federer? Well, um, Federer got – Federer, Federer played – I saw his second round match. But he had an interesting stat. He played three straight uh, individuals that were 5, 9, and under. Uh, there's no stats on that, but they were saying it was the first time that he played someone, which made it difficult. These are someone who's 5'9", is running around the court, doesn't have a lot of power on the serves, but could give them. It was interesting that he, he played three guys that were 5'9", and for the same type of style. Uh, this, and the, but he did not play well the first two mat- matches. He played Nagal, not Nadal. So that was the biggest joke of the match was this Nagal of India with N-A-G-A-L. And in the first set, he was terrible. And he lost the first set 4-6, but then easily won 6-1, 6-2, 6-4, but really didn't play well. And then I saw him play uh, Duesmer in the second round, and he again lost the first set 6-3, just making mistakes, double faulting, uh, hitting shots everywhere. And then he recovered 6-2, 6-3, 6-4, but just didn't look good. I mean, he's playing people that are ranked 120, 130 in the world. But then he played Donald Evans, Daniel Evans, in the third round from England and won easily 2-2-1. and And David Goffin, he played yesterday uh, against Belgium and won 2-2-0. and And so that was a huge advantage for Federer. Now he's now playing great. And the biggest advantage is that last night Djokovic lost. So Federer would have had to play Djokovic in the semifinals. Uh, he plays Dimitrov. Federer now plays Dimitrov next. And then he plays the winner of Medvedev and Warinka in the semifinals, not Djokovic, because the, how the draw set up was that Djokovic and Federer were going to play in the semis. Nadal was on the other side of the draw playing nobody, really. And so that was the uh, – so that's so Federer now – it's looking great, and he definitely uh, draws the fans in. There's tons of people. I don't know if they're Swiss, but the, the Federer fans are out. They don't know how much longer this is going to go. He uh, is 38 years old, but he is playing great at those last two matches and, uh, and is fired up to, 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 to close this out and, and, and win his first. He hasn't won a U.S. Open in 10 years, so he's trying to win his first U.S. Open in 10 years. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, along for the ride as well. So you mentioned the Joker lost, Ira. How'd we get there? Well, it was he won. He won his first match easily. I saw him play this Argentinian named Landero in the second round, and he won six four seven six six one. But he played terrible. He was injured. Now he plays right-handed. 
but his left shoulder was hurting. So you're like, well, if you're playing right-handed, how would it hurt? Your, what, is, what is your left shoulder hurting? But he hardly could even toss the ball up to do the serve. And when he uses the two-handed backhand, backhand, so every time he tried to hit his backhand, his backhands were going everywhere. And then it was getting in his head, and he was making mistakes. Um, he was down, he won the first at 6-4, was down 3-0 in the second, and then he won five games and uh, five straight games, but he still couldn't even close them out. And he was getting treatment after every break. The therapist was coming out, massaging his shoulder. Uh, then he took a medical timeout. Everything with his shoulder. I was wondering if he could continue in that match um, because he seemed to be just in complete pain. And if Londero could play, Londero is just not that great a tennis player in terms of beating Djokovic. And this was a chance, though, because Bajok was injured, but he just could not take that match from him. And then the third round, though, he played Dennis Kula, from America, and he won easily, and it didn't seem to have any shoulder problems at all. But against Rowinka last night, first of all, the atmosphere was just electric. It's, it's, the match starts at 9 o'clock. It's Sunday night. That's usually not a big night at the Open. They usually don't put their best matches on Sunday night, but it, because Federer had played during the day and Serena played during the day. But it was packed. You couldn't, there was like no empty seats on the 18,000-seat stadium. And Rorinka, what's his background? Well, he's 34 years old, and for four straight years, he was number four in the world. But he had knee surgery two years ago and really just fell off the map. He was only ranked like 22nd in the tournament. But he beat, uh, four years ago, he beat Nadal in the final of the Australian Open. He beat Djokovic in the final of the French Open. And beat Djokovic again three years ago in the final of the U.S. Open. So, and he's also beat Murray. So he, Murray, in, uh, I think he beat Murray in Wimbledon. He is known to be he's on, on clay, but uh, in French. But he has now beaten four number one players, in, in, and then he won last night. So now this is five number one players in Grand Slams. So he is tremendous in the Grand Slams. I mean, Djokovic has a very good record against him overall in three-set matches, but when it goes to five-set matches in the Grand Slams, uh, Warwick has a winning record against him. Uh, he serves the ball very flat, uh, very hard, and hits a very flat shot, not the topspin. And Djokovic seems to have trouble with that. I, I was there three years ago for the match when he just took it to Djokovic. He just said, look, I know you're great, but I'm just going to hit the ball harder. I'm going to go for the lines, and I'm going to serve hard and just win. And, and he plays fearless. There's no messing around. There's no with the towels. There's no hysteronics. Well, Rinka just goes for it, and he just he was he played he played great last night. And everyone is now. I'm reading the headlines of the papers. Everyone's saying, "Well, Djokovic was injured. Djokovic's injured." Djokovic was well. Rinka beat Djokovic. I'd want him to get that credit for that. I mean, he 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 won the first two sets, uh, and then in the third set, uh, it was. Um, he went. He went in the first set. He won six four. But then in the second set, he went down four nothing. So and so, Djokovic seemed like getting everything back together. He's got this back. He's up four zero in the second set. But then Warinka won five straight games. Djokovic took it to five five. But then Warinka was able to win that set seven five. And then in the third set, it's it's two one. Uh, Djokovic um, Warinka broke Djokovic in the third game, and Djokovic walks to the umpire. I'm like, what's he doing talking? And he was talking to Orinka. Next thing you know, he's hugging Orinka, and he, he defaulted. But he, already, he only had treatment like one time for his shoulder during the whole thing. There was no medical timeout. There was nothing. He just gave up. 
And so people, I, I like, well, finish the match. The match was like an hour and 30, hour 40 minutes. Like, I'm waiting for Djokovic to turn this into a five-set match. You're the defending champion. You're number one in the world. You won 16 majors. Like, I just thought for a left shoulder injury, I, look, everyone plays with injuries. I think he should have played the match out. I, even if it was, even if we would have lost that 6-1, I still think you'd have to go and play that, that final set out. Um, but it was, uh, it was a big win for Rinka. And now he plays Medvedev in the uh, quarterfinals to then the winner, if, if Federer wins, and the winner would play, then Federer would play Wawrinka or, uh, or Medvedev. You know, we talked about uh, Medvedev a few times on this show. I've got to admit, I don't know much about him. So tell us a little bit about him and what we can expect. Well, about Medvedev, the interesting thing is that my girlfriend and Medvedev, she became the biggest fan because their birthdays on our <laughs> February 11th, the same day. The same day. Um, and so we were at the City Open, and he's playing TFO in the City Open, and everyone's cheering for TFO because TFO's from D.C., and Medvedev sort of enjoyed the atmosphere of everybody against him. But I think he's now played – I mean – He's, I have, I, so I, it's interesting, when you go to these Open, when you go to the Open, you can go to the Ash, which is the 18,000-seat stadium, and it's very hard to sit down low. I would say 2,000 seats are in the, quote, lower bowl, and the other seats are up, and then there's suites. There's two levels of suites, and the rest of the seats are up high. It's unlike in football stadiums where you see most of the seats in the lower bowl or in baseball, but in this stadium, most of the seats are up high. So when you sit up high, you don't have that great angle. But on the outdoor courts, there's just like one little bowl, and they're smaller. And the grandstand, I love this grandstand they built two years ago. It's a circle. It's like, a, like the Roman Colosseum. And you can sit right behind the service. I was in the second row. So I saw some great matches that day because you're looking on who's playing in Ash and who's playing in the grandstand. You're trying to guess, but I'm like, for much less money, you could sit in the grandstand and you're sitting in the second row and you're seeing a great match. So I sat there for that day, and I saw it because I knew Kyrgyz was coming on later. Medvedev is the number five seed, and he was cruising. Now, the 6-3-7-5, and it was cruising, but he was playing well over uh, Hugo Dalam from Bulgaria. And then in the third set, he's up 5-4, and he starts cramping in his legs. And he couldn't even walk. He was just he was staggering all over the place. He couldn't even move. He started serving underhand, underhand <laughs> serves, uh, and it was crazy. And he ended up losing that set. I'm like, he's out. Like I was texting everyone, he's finished, he's done. How do you serve underhand? He's going to quit. But and he was yelling at his box, like, give me this powder. He's screaming powder, powder. And they gave him goes wrong powder because their coaches' boxes or whatever that where the coaches and managers were sitting were right there. You can they're very close, unlike in the big state. So I could see him like screaming at his box to give him stuff, and they were running him stuff and whatever. Whatever they gave him worked because then he stopped cramping in the third set, and he ended up winning six three. Uh, but for that win, but it was it was I've, ne- I've never seen a player so like he was literally staggering like a fighter would be staggering. He couldn't even stand up straight. Uh, and the smart thing he did though, uh, and the commentators were saying that is that a lot of times people have cramps and they sit down. He during the changeover he was standing up, moving around, walking, keeping it, trying to get it go and whatever. Whatever he did and whatever powder he had or whatever he took, it worked. Because for him to get through those cramps on his legs when he hardly could walk and win that match was great. But in the next match, I, I saw it. It was not there at this match, but I saw it. He played Felipe Lopez. And during the match, a uh, ball boy came over to him to give him a towel, and he, like, waved the ball boy off. The ball boy didn't leave, stayed there, and he looked at the ball boy like, what are you doing? And they just grabbed the towel from the ball boy. And the people didn't like that. They started booing him, and now he's become this, this uh, bad boy because they started booing him during that entire match. 
And then so last night I saw him play Kepfer of Germany, and I thought I saw what happened, but I didn't think the fans were going to be totally against him. But they were booing him the entire match. Even after he won the match, they were, they, you couldn't even hear him in the press conference. And he was like, keep booing. You're giving me inspiration. You're inspiring me. And that made the fans boo him more. I mean, it was like a WWE wrestling match, not, a, not, a, not, a, not tennis, where it's there. You know, even if everyone cheers and whatever. But it was um, – he – he he is an interesting player because he hits the ball. His serve is, is excellent serve and strong ground strokes. But Rorinka, while Rinka plays how he played against Djokovic last night, he's going to beat him. But Medvedev is this great young player at 22, and I think he's going to be. He's one of these guys that you look and says, "Look, I think he's going to to win a Grand Slam." And and the and. The intriguing part of this tournament is that in the first round, there were some big upsets. Tsitsipas of Greece lost to Rublev. Uh, he was the number eight seed. Thiem, who was sick, he was ill. They didn't even know if he could play. He's the number four seed who uh, played against the Dahl in the French Open final, who I think is going to be the, the next great player. He lost in four sets to Fabiano in the first round. And Karen Karachov, the other great Russian player, he lost in five sets in the first round, too. And then even this Canadian FAA, who we talked about before, he lost in one one and four to in the first round to another Canadian. So uh, some of these big name players that I was saying, this is the tournament. This is where they're going to make the breakthrough. This is when everyone's going to hear. Uh, they didn't make the breakthrough. And then it's the old timers. It's the Warinkas that are winning and going forward. And of course, Nadal and Federer. You know, um, Ira, we haven't talked about uh, Rafi Nadal yet. So what happened with him? Uh, Nadal is really not, nothing has happened to Nadal. Nadal was on that bottom of the draw where all were Tsitsipas and Thiem were. So all the seeds have lost around him. He's, pro, he's played nobody who's ranked oh, under 100 in the 100th in the world. He won his first match 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. The next match, that was the match on Thursday when I went over to uh, City Field. And after the, and, they, and the baseball game, the first baseball game I ever went to was like two hours, 30 minutes long. So the baseball game's over. I'm like, I might be able to catch the Nadal match if I go back to the Open. But, and I'm looking, I'm like, where's the score? Where's the score? What, what has it started? And it didn't start because his opponent uh, pulled out, uh, cockiness of Austria, pulled out right before the match started. So how would you like to have spent a fortune for that? I didn't buy a ticket yet for that. A fortune for the match to go watch this match. And you don't get refunds because they played the women's match before. So you, you're just, you're, you just paid all this money to go, or you came all the way out to the Open, and you don't even see Nadal play. So he's only played two matches, and he plays tonight, um, Silic tonight, who he should easily beat. Um, but he really, the rest of his draw, the best seed is Monfils of France, who he's beat every single time he's played him, it seems like. I, I can't see how Nadal doesn't make it to the finals. So you're really looking at the bottom of the draw where Nadal makes it to the finals against either, uh, against hopefully Federer and have a great Federer-Nadal U.S. Open final. Uh, that would be the, the, probably the toughest tennis ticket in years, uh, except for Wimbledon, uh, but the def- definitely the toughest tech- tennis ticket of the U.S. Open in history. Ira, we've talked about this uh, Nick Kyrgios guy from Australia. Um, he seems to be a little bit of a wild card. What do we get from him? Well, I don't, I've never been to a tennis match where I was seeing the grandstand and the ushers came to everyone before the match. It was sort of like when you're sitting in the exit row of the airplane and they're like, you're sitting in the exit row in case of emergency, this is what you have to do, and all this. They give their warnings. The usher came to everyone and, and gave this speech to everybody. I mean, you could see all the ushers. And they're saying, he is crazy. He is going to try to engage the fans. He's going to try to talk to you. Do not talk to him. Do not get engaged. Do not yell at him. Do not be mean to him. I mean, that was, they were, I mean 
<laughs> Could you imagine that, like, in a basketball game? Or a football game? It was like, to end, not just an overall announcement, but not talking about the player he's playing, just Kyrgyz himself. That's crazy. And it was, and he, you see him in the warm-ups. In the warm-ups, he is, you're supposed to be, when you warm, tennis is the one sport where you warm the other player up. So, like, you're both hitting, and you're supposed to be giving each other shots to hit. He's doing trick shots and warm-ups. So the player he's playing, which is Huang from France, he, he can't really do anything. He can't get into a warm-up because Kyrgyz is just joking around too much. And then when the match is supposed to start, Huang is standing there at the baseline, but Kyrgyz has a problem. I don't know what the problem was, but he had to call. There was a problem with something, which, of course, he always has a problem. So he calls the chair umpire, and then the tournament umpire comes out, and they talk, and they talk, and then, then he's ready to play. But this is one of the first times, that, the closest I've been to Kyrgyz for a match, and his serve is almost unreturnable when he's hitting it hard. I mean, it's Warinka's at like 130 miles an hour, and he pounds it, and there were some games where he just goes ace, 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 and he just goes for every shot, and he's athletic and quick, but mentally he's not there. Like, he can't – like, if you can stay in a point with him, you can beat him in that point. Unfortunately, Hong couldn't stay in that point and beat him, because he, and that's why he got destroyed. But uh, Rublev then beat Kyrgios in the next set. But Kyrgios did not have any blow-ups, didn't have any uh, – he – horrendous experiences, except when he played Steve Johnson in the round before, he was mocking John. I think the problem was is that Johnson is a popular American, and he was, he was mocking Johnson a lot, and, I, and he was winning the match, but I, it just, I thought Johnson could do more against him, and he didn't, and it was just, he was sort of rubbing it in his face when he was winning, and then he made comments afterwards about Johnson. Uh, it's just, he's just, it's everything he does. It's a problem. It's trouble. He's unlike any other. There's 127 other players in the draw, and there's one player who they have to give a speech to the fans before they play. It is it is crazy. I, I've never heard of anything like that. And you're right. Imagine in the NBA going up to going up to the people in the, on court side and saying, "Watch out for this player. Don't engage him." Uh, super funny stuff. It's Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. I we haven't talked about the uh, ladies yet. So what happened with the women? Well, the big story of this tournament is Coco Goff, and she's 15 years old from Delray Beach, and she had a great run at Wimbledon. And everyone has. I'm surprised she didn't play at Ash until the third round, but she won her first round. She played at Armstrong. Uh, she won th- two tough three-set matches um, against unseated players in the first two rounds uh, that just were drawing. I mean, she is the talk of the town. She's playing doubles, and they're, you can't even get into her doubles matches on these offside courts. There are people who are like, pushing and shoving. She's very popular, one of the most popular. She's like when Serena came out 20 years ago mm-hmm. at Venus, that, that same type of popularity. Uh, but she ended up playing Osaka, who's the number one seed in the tournament defending champion. And Osaka has her own, I guess, uh, celebrity status. She's being coached somehow by Kobe Bryant. Uh, mentally, she said, and Colin Kaepernick was in her box. So she's sitting there with Kobe Bryant, Colin Kaepernick, and, uh, and, and, and she's not had a really good year. She won Australian Open, but has lost almost everything since. And then now she's playing great uh, against, Goff, against Goff. She played Saturday night, and everyone's like, well, if Goff beats Osaka, what would this mean? And Osaka beat her in an hour, 6 3 six, oh. But Coco Goff has been the story of the tournament. Everyone's talking about her, she's, and that's been the the excitement around the women with Serena also playing too very well. Yes, yeah, Serena has been um, ha- has been doing well. Uh, why don't we talk about her? Well, I saw her against. Well, she's played Sharapova, and you have to think that on Monday night the Open starts, and it's supposed to be a random draw. But the networks, 
this is like this, the uh, NCAA Final Four when you get these matchups. They're like, do they really put that matchup? Is it, is it why they did that? Because they need a draw for the night. The tenant, they need something. So they put Sharapova versus Serena Williams because these two competitors don't like each other. They hate each other. And they've been two of the biggest names in tennis. I mean, Serena definitely. But Sharapova has also been Grand Slam winner, a winner, a multiple Grand Slam winner. But Serena has beat Sharapova 16 times and only lost twice to her. And they played on Monday night, and Serena destroyed her, 6-1, 6-1. And then Serena, then I saw the match, Serena played against Katie McNally. And Katie McNally is going under the radar because she is 17 years old. Coco Goff is 15 years old. Katie McNally is from Cincinnati. They're best friends. They play doubles together. And I think she's going to be great. Now, I don't know if she's going to – I think – I can't say she's going to be better than Coco Golf, but if she's number one in the world, I wouldn't be surprised. She plays – her idol is Federer, and she plays like Federer. She goes for her serves. She goes to the net. She likes to slice her back out, backhand. She goes for the lines. She doesn't just hit. She plays hard. She plays fast. She plays with uh, – she's I, – I like her style, and she moves her feet. Her footwork – is unlike any other young, I mean, much better than golf's footwork. She is, she is like, her feet are moving the entire time. She's always in position for the ball. And against Serena, she took the first set 7-5. Yeah, yeah. and the first set, she was, it was 7-5. And I thought, uh, and, then she was, and then she was leading in, in the second set. Uh, she was up in the second set, but Serena broke her and then ended up uh, winning five straight games and then won the third set 6-1. But Serena was like, I didn't play well, I played terrible, but she gave a lot of credit to uh, McNally uh, with her, with just how she played, her attacking style, uh, and uh, I think she's going to be, I think, I can't wait to keep watching McNally. I, people, she has totally gone under the radar in this tournament uh, because of golf, but she might, it wouldn't surprise me if she's better than golf, it has a better career than Coco does, because of her, just her style and her play, she's different. The, the, the serving and volleying the, at the net uh, just hits the ball harder than Goff does. So, but Goff is only 15, she's 17. But they're both great. They both could be one and two in the world. And it's good that they're best friends also. Very cool that they're uh, you two Americans that are keeping uh, women's tennis afloat at least. Any other takeaways from the first round of the ladies? Um, mainly that the American women got four. Uh, on is playing. Christy On is actually playing in the, in the, in the round of 16. And uh, uh, there was, there was um, 18, 18 of the 128 people were Americans that, uh, uh, that were there. And there, I thought there was going to be more breakthroughs. There's so many young Americans. Uh, Sloane Stevens, though, lost in the first round, the former champion. Uh, Monica Keys, uh, Madison Keys lost last night. Uh, but American Taylor Townsend, who was another one of these going to be superstars, but now she's, quote, old at 23. But she's a 23-year-old. She played Justine Hennon, the Wimbledon champ, in, in Ash. And I was missing that match. But that was one of the matches of the tournament where she won in three sets uh, a thriller against Hennon. When both, both players had match points, uh, multiple match points in that final set. Uh, but Taylor is, still, is playing today again. Uh, so she's – look, there's so many great American young women. The, the future for American women is – is tremendous. You either have the Goffs and the McNallys, the 15- and 17-year-olds, and you have maybe Keys and Stone Stevens or Taylor Townsend. And I saw Sophia Kennan play, who was 20 years old, and had a good win. So there's just so many Americans uh, that are there. But I think, look, Serena, this is all about Serena. This is Serena trying to get the, the, the tie Margaret Court with 24 Grand Slams. Uh, and it looks like she's 
Serena just has to please Serena. No one's beating – Serena is the best player. Serena's the most talent. If Serena's mind is in this, she's moving well, she's going to win this tournament. But it's not – it doesn't matter who she plays. It's, it's not – someone's not going to beat her. She's going to have to beat herself. Ira, let's uh, switch gears, go over to baseball. You mentioned you were uh, sliding Mets games in, in, between, uh, in between the open matches. Uh, City Field – it's a huge upgrade over Shea Stadium. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Not my favorite stadium of the new versions. What What do you think about City Field? I'm sure you've been there plenty. I haven't been there in about a year and a half. And I, after going to Dodger Stadium, like all these, like this whole summer, a zillion games, I I wasn't impressed. I mean, I I sat on the behind, the, I sat behind the first base dugout. First of all, I the line to get in City Field. People waited an hour to get it. Like, a baseball game, you're waiting an hour? Like, it was like the first time the Mets are like, we just opened a new stadium, we never had fans before. I have no <laughs> idea why the lines were so long. Now, I have this thing, you have clear. So if you have clear, and when you go to the airport, if you ever see these clear things, you have TSA. So if you, some baseball stadiums have clear, so you actually can go and jump the line if you have clear. So I use my clear to jump. I've done the Yankee Stadium. You do it in Marlins Park, which you don't really need in Marlins Park. You do the heat, also have clear. But that was great. Otherwise, I, had, I was going to a game with somebody who, who, didn't, who missed it like four innings of the game because they were waiting to come into the, into the because the lines were so long outside. Um, it's just everything's chaotic in the stadium. I, I swear, I don't know, think they understand how to do a baseball game. You couldn't order food. There were no vendors. The lines at the vendor, I just, just want to have a hot dog, and it seemed like it was a, a military operation to order a hot dog and a, and a soda and a pretzel, and they were bringing it to the wrong places. And I just didn't seem – the field like – and also they, the field, we were on the second row. It was all, the field was so high, you're almost looking up behind the dugout. And, of course, I hate the Nets. And whatever Nets they use are the worst in the world. Like uh, the people who say you don't see the Nets, um, look at my Instagram pictures on Iron Sports. Uh, you just see the Nets. It was, it was, I couldn't even see through the Nets to watch the game. Uh, but I don't – not – the stadium – at first, I don't know. I sat there when it first opened, and I liked it. I'm now not liking it as much as I like Yankee Stadium. It just – it was – it was just seems to be it's not and i don't think they're keeping it up i mean i've been there two years and and things were broken my my seat wasn't working i mean it's a new stadium and your seats are your seat doesn't seats broke it's very weird in terms of of just how the, the mets are and then the fans are upset because they've lost five in a row now and they were they had that nice great run and then they're playing the cubs the grom lester and they with their best pitcher on the mound and lester's pitching a marvelous marvelous game. 71 pitches in six innings. He gave up one hit, which was a home run to Rosario, Rosario, Victor Serratini. And then in the sixth inning, their shortstop, Rosario, uh, they hit ball directly to him, and he makes an error. And and he clearly made an error. It was hit to him. He bobbled it, couldn't catch, could get it, and then throws it to the first base, and they gave it a hit, which he couldn't believe it. The next batter hits the ball up the middle, and Rosario doesn't even try for it. Like, it's it's right up the middle, and he doesn't even try for it. So now there's men on first and second, and the inning should be over, but then Saratini comes up again, the one with the home run earlier, hits a three-run home run, and you the, the entire stadium just, like, went silent because suddenly they saw DeGrom, now he's down 4-1. They know the Mets can't score, the Mets can't come back. This was like the season. Like everyone around me, that's the season. The season's over. So that was uh, uh, that. Was that. But I, this Rosario at short, I, I've been watching Seager play short for the Dodgers, and Seager's not known as this great defensive shortstop. But when you see Rosario making these mistakes at short, you're just like, wow, I'm sure the Mets. You've got to put a great defensive player at short. If you have all this, if you have this amazing pitching staff, you've got to have better defense behind them. Yeah, Rosario's another one of these in a long line of Mets prospects that – 
gets touted to to baseball and Mets fans as the you know the the second coming of Babe Ruth. And they just never pan out. He's not an awful player, but he's nothing like they thought he was going to be, you know, three or four years ago. And, and yeah, the defensive woes uh, on a team like that that gets by on pitching, you got to play good defense. And, and they're just uh, they're just not doing it. And I thought was it so? We're in the second. We're, I'm in the second row. Robbie Cano was so you couldn't see anybody in the dugout at all, but you could see. But Robbie Cano was putting his head outside the dugout and looking in the stands almost the whole game. Now, he's on injured list, so I'd, he's, I guess, allowed to do that. I don't know what he was looking for or who he was looking at or whatever, but he was, I was getting pictures. I mean, Robbie Cano was just there just looking at And I was afraid one time, and then Rosario joined him. So they're both, like, looking at the audience all the time. Like, Rosario, when, so that's when, when Rosario's on the field, so when the, when the Mets are at bat, Rosario's not focusing on what pitches are being thrown by Lester. He's too busy looking in, in the audience. And then he's joking around. I'm like, well, that's a great attitude to have. Like, if I was the manager, I said, stop looking, like, focus on the game. And then you can see Rosario in the field, and he is not paying attention. When the, I said this to the people around us, I go, he's not paying attention. Then he makes these two bad defensive errors. I go, Every, all the other players in the match are, like, focused. I mean, is it too hard to ask a player? Like, he looked like that little leaguer, like the kid is, like, when the grandparents are like, pay attention, pay attention on the field. When the, like, he was bored to be out there. And um, I and I felt bad for the Mets because he cost them that game. He cost DeGrom. DeGrom was pitching this marvelous, tremendous game. He cost them the game. I just Not to be overly critical, but having not been someone who watched Rosario play a zillion times, I just a terrible performance. So, Ira, yesterday the, the Yankees' absolute magic just continues. They're down 4 uh, nothing going into the eighth inning and come back and win 5-4 with a walk-off versus Oakland. And while this is happening... Justin Verlander's throwing his third no-hitter. It's just everything they do, the, the, the uh, Astros, your World Series pick, seem to have an answer for, and Verlander was just filthy with 14 Ks. I mean, can we just advance? As I was listening to the announcer during tennis, and when Isner, John Isner plays, and he just, like, he gives his serve as almost unreturnable. He goes, and everything, almost every set he plays is a tiebreaker. And almost, the, they say the umpire gives a score. It's like, can we just get to the tiebreaker? And it's almost like in the American League, can we just get to Astros-Yankees? Can we just get to that game? Like, don't play seven games. Play 15, best out of 15. Like, <laughs> these two teams are so by and far the best teams. I, they are, like, let's have this out. Let's have these two teams healthy play against each other and see what happens. They have, the Yankees have, are one game up now on the Astros. But Verlander pitches a third no-hitter second this year, which is, and then, um, but the Yankees come back. And the Yankees are winning. Mike Ford, who's a career minor leaguer, he comes in and has the big win hit last night. LeMahieu, who's going to be, who they trade from Colorado, uh, is probably going to be second for the MVP. Judge and Sanchez. So I guess Judge hit a home run, and he's like the fastest Yankee to hit 100 home runs. And then Sanchez hit another home run besides, besides Babe Ruth, whatever. And then, and then Sanchez hits another home run, and he's like the second fastest. So you have these guys hitting, and Torres is, Gleyber Torres is, is a tremendous player. And they're getting uh, Severino, but Tantas in pitching, uh, and Carcione to hit, Stanton to hit. I mean, they're getting four superstars to play. Uh, they're going to be probably playing next week or two. Uh, the Yankees are uh, they they won three in Seattle. They won two out of three against the A's. You can and now the pitching is pitching great. And when you can see when the Yankees are going, like if you put a bad pitcher against the Yankees, they're going to just score ten runs. Like forget it. Like they're just going to hit home run after home run. And I like when I was watching the Mets. 
So when uh, Lagaris is their center fielder, he's hitting like 200, and he pit, he hits eighth, and the hitter and the pitcher hits ninth. And when that inning starts, it's like it's like a throwaway inning. Like it's over. They're, they're not getting a hit. They're not getting anyone on. And that's the difference between the Dodgers and the Mets because the Dodgers eighth place hitters they don't have any weak bad hitters everybody's their worst hitters are hitting like with home with 25 home runs and so they actually they can get maybe the eighth guy if he leads off gets on and the pitchers know how to bunt and bunt him over now with the yankees because they're playing with the designated hitter everybody in the lineup sitting home runs everybody's hitting there's no weakness uh and if you put a bad pitcher against the yankees you're just going to score 10 15 runs no problem for that yeah, you know, a lot of days they'll line up Glaber Torres in the eighth spot before um, Brett Gardner in nine or something, and Torres could be hitting three on half the teams in the league. They got him slotted in at eighth. It's just crazy. They got a wealth of riches, at least uh, at least with the bats. The pitchers, we'll have to see. But, yeah, getting uh, Severino and Batantis actually through a uh, bullpen session yesterday. He said he wasn't really quite happy, but he should be back soon as well. Um, going to the National League, uh, your Dodgers have kind of been going the opposite way. That Yankee series, I was at that game when they lost, and I said last one, that Yankee series, I felt like that that deflated the Dodgers, and boy, they have played deflated. They, uh, they, 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 they against Arizona and San Diego this week, they won three games, they lost four, and the two they won were in extra innings. They did not play well all week. Rue got shelled again. and was going to win the Cy Young Award. Now, now he's had three straight starts where he's given up six or seven runs. Um, been terrible. And that Yankee series took a lot of wind out of that. Do- that do- that, that's like the bully. The Dodgers are the bully who somebody punched them, and now they're not. They don't know what they are. Like, they don't know. They don't, they can't, they don't, they don't feel like they're the bully anymore, and they don't know how to act. And uh, I think that, that series, if the Dodgers have trouble with the playoffs, you can look back to the last week in August when they when the Yankees went and took two out of three as what was their entire problem for the rest of the year. Um, so give us a quick uh, heads up on how the uh, playoffs are looking with uh, less than like a month to go. Well, nothing changes in the National in the American League. The Yankees, Twins, and Astros are in, and really just the Indians, A's, and Rays are two of those three going at the wild card spot. But as again, I've said just a few minutes ago, Yankees and Astros will be there. In the I I can't see the Twins. Any of these teams beating the Yankees or Astros, they're just too good. And then the National League, uh, the Braves, Cardinals, and Dodgers, and the Nationals have opened up an elite. They have that, that first wild card, so they're five games up. Now, they're behind the Braves too much to catch up to the Braves probably, but they're five on the Cubs. But the Cubs now, with those wins against the sweep of the Mets, they've opened up a two-and-a-half game lead over the Phils, Milwaukee, and Arizona. So we might – I was – thinking we're going to have the last game of the season. Every game matters. It's going to be the greatest day in baseball. It will be on a Sunday, so no one will care because it will be against the NFL. But it looks like um, it looks like maybe the Cubs and Nationals will get those those uh, the wild card spots. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo along as well. Um, you took in some college football as well, Ira, and this one got a little lopsided. Well, I don't know if it was college football, but it was 79-7. I mean, <laughs> uh, Penn State played Idaho. Just some stats. Uh, the Penn State had 35 first downs, Idaho 5. Penn State had 673 yards, Idaho 145. And talking about a stat that's weird, the time of possession was about equal. <laughs> so you have equal time of possession. But why teams play this is because that's what every – anybody who watched college football the last week, you're looking at these scores in these teams, and this is what goes on. These teams, you play your conference games – 
uh, you're eight or nine in conference, and the conference outside the conference, you're just not. They don't. You're just going to play games. You're going to pay. Idaho has played paid about a million dollars to come to the game, and as long as teams can get, like Penn State had 104,000 fans at the game, as long as they can get 104,000 fans to watch the game against Idaho when they win 79-7, they're going to keep scheduling teams like this. And they're going to play Buffalo next week, and then they're going to play Pitt the following week, which is actually going to – Pitt had a bad loss against Virginia. But you're going to start to keep seeing games like this. And, and the surprise is when these teams – like last year, Penn State played Appalachian State, and the game went to overtime. So you don't want that to happen. But uh, Penn State's defense is very improved – and they are great. Penn State's going to have a very, very good defense this year, and their running backs and wide receivers are as deep as I've ever seen uh, on the team in their offensive line. Their quarterback, Sean Clifford, unfortunately, he's like the third-string quarterback because their first-string quarterback was going to be Justin Fields this year. Trace McSorley graduated. Justin Fields was the top quarterback recruit. He was going to Penn State. James Franklin and Fields had a great relationship, and Fields was going to come to Penn State. Then at the last minute, he backed out of Penn State, went to Georgia. Went to Georgia, sat behind Drake Fromm last year. Sort of, They brought him into the mix. He didn't play. And then he transferred from Georgia to Ohio State. So what he did yesterday, he started for Ohio State. So the quarterback was supposed to be starting for Penn State, starting for Ohio State, and then, okay, well, that's okay. Well, Penn State had this guy, Tommy Stevens, who was the backup for McSorley for three years. But he transferred to Mississippi State because he got in – he was, did not like what Franklin was. He did, I guess he, was, he had a fight with Franklin. Joe Moorhead was the offensive coordinator that he got along with, is now the new coach of Mississippi State from last year. So he transferred to Mississippi State. He had a good game, first game. So really, Sean Clifford, who's the quarterback for Penn State, is the third, was, would have been the third-string quarterback this year. Um, he played. Everyone thought he played great. I, I thought he was average. I thought he missed a lot of open receivers. Idaho really didn't give much on defense, and, and I just was not impressed. K.J. Handler, the wide receiver for Penn State, hit four catches for 115 yards and two touchdowns. He's number one. Oh, he's so great. He's going to be tremendous. But I, I'm nervous. I like Penn State's team. They really have like eight or nine games they should win, uh, and then three, like the Michigans and Ohio State to Michigan State. But I, I am concerned about the quarterback play because Hamler's going to have to, I mean, um, Clifford's going to have to outperform Fields to beat Ohio State and to beat Michigan and these teams. Uh, I just don't, hopefully he'll grow into that role, but I, I wasn't that impressed with him in this game. Ira, what else uh, is going on with the, uh, with the big top 25 uh, this past week? Well, I, the game that was on, on Thursday night, Clemson-Georgia Tech, now, Trevor Lawrence has a bullseye in terms of not only does everyone think he's a sophomore, he's going to win two Heisman trophies, but also he is going to be the number one player in the draft. Like, he could have been number one player last year, this year, and the following year. But he just played average against Georgia Tech. They were heavily favored. But their running back, Travis Etienne, who's back from last year at 12 carries for 205 yards. I mean, they destroyed Georgia Tech 52-14. Uh, Lawrence had two interceptions. One was just at the end of the half where he just threw a Hail Mary. But there's nothing. I mean, Clemson has two more games. They're going to win every game like that. I mean, they are literally going to win every game by 30 to 40 points. Um, They are that good. Uh, And then Alabama played Duke. Now, usually Alabama, their schedule uh, philosophy is we play a tough team earlier in the season, and then we have cupcakes, and then we beat most of the SEC teams. We beat all the SEC teams, and then we're in the playoffs. Well, this year they're playing Duke. In the first round, in the first game, and Duke's not very good, and they killed Duke 42 to three. And Tua Tagovailoa, their uh, star quarterback, uh, was 26 for 31, four touchdowns, looked tremendous. And Jared Judy, if you look at these boards from Mashiche and Kuiper, people think he's the best player in college football. He had 10 catches for 137 yards, 
uh, a wide receiver, one of the best wide receiver prospects, people say, in the history of college football. So it's going to be uh, very intriguing to follow Bama and Judy and Tua as this year goes on and, and Judy and see if Judy – Usually, quarterbacks will go one or two, and I don't think he was going to be the. the I think Keyshawn Johnson might have been the first wide receiver, the last wide receiver to go number one in the draft. But Judy's going to be definitely in the NFL next year. And then Georgia played Vanderbilt, killed them thirty to six. And then the the uh, fourth ranked team, Oklahoma, against Houston. And again, we talk about these transfers of quarterbacks. So Jalen Hurts was the quarterback of Alabama. Tua comes in, takes the job from Jalen. Now, remember, Jalen last year saved and won Georgia in the championship game, but then Hurts transferred this year to Oklahoma, who's had the two back-to-back Heisman Trophy winners, it's Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray, and Hurts is the quarterback of Oklahoma. They're like, oh, well, this is step down. Hurts isn't as good as Murray. Hurts is not as good as Mayfield. He's not going to be. He's not becoming the system. And uh, Lincoln Riley, again, another great job with this quarterback. He was 20 for 23, 332 yards passing, three touchdowns. He ran for 176 yards and three touchdowns. So he had six touchdowns. He had 500 total yards. Uh, I look tremendous and LSU easy win Michigan easy win Texas easy win um, and Washington now again this whole quarterback transferring Jacob Eason was also at Georgia so when I talked about Justin Fields going there and Jake Fromm beat Jacob Eason out now he's the quarterback at Washington the number three ranked team so these, this, this, the uh, method now is if you get beat out as a quarterback transfer to another school and be a starting quarterback there um, the only great game uh, top ranked teams of the weekend was Auburn versus Oregon and Auburn won 27-21 in Dallas. Uh, Justin Herbert is another quarterback people think is pro prospect, great. He came back. He could have been drafted last year, maybe the second round, came back, and uh, he played well, but a bad loss for Oregon, for Auburn to come back when they had a true freshman, Bo Nix, and they were down two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, led them to the first touchdown, and in the second they were just trying to get in field goal position, and he went and threw a 40-yard touchdown pass. Uh, to win the game. So great win for Auburn, bad, bad loss for Oregon and for Justin Herbert. Um, you, you didn't bring up my uh, Middle Tennessee Blue Raiders, <laughs> which is uh, which is good. They um, they didn't look so good against Michigan, but uh, it was not a good day for the SEC overall. The SEC, again, they have some teams that uh, Mississippi lost to Memphis uh, 15-10. Now, Memphis is good, and Mississippi is bad, but for Mississippi to lose to Memphis, and, and Mississippi's offensive coordinator that only scored 10 points is Rich Rodriguez. So talk about falls from grace. Rich Rodriguez was supposed to be the coach of Alabama. He turned down the Alabama job when Saban then got the job, so he for the Michigan job. But uh, Rodriguez could have been at Alabama. He ended up being um, went from West Virginia to Michigan to Arizona, and now he's the offensive coordinator of Mississippi, and he's losing 15-10 to Memphis. Um, North Carolina beat South Carolina. We have had Steve Tannehill on the show, the great South Carolina quarterback, talking about how the Clemson being the greatest team in the country is going to motivate South Carolina because it's supposed to be that's their state, and they seem to be falling further down. Mac Brown was the coach of North Carolina years ago, goes to Texas, uh, leads them to a national championship, coaches there for 20 years, and then is in broadcasting for years. North Carolina says, you know what, we need a new coach. Let's bring Mac Brown back. <laughs> and that was a great win for Mac Brown, uh, 24-20. Uh, and the uh, and and the and uh, and the, uh, Missouri lost to Wyoming, 37-31. Uh, and Arkansas barely beat Portland State, which is just not even. I didn't even know Portland State had a team, 20 to 13. <laughs> but the hugest, I, when we use the term upset, this is Tennessee 
And this team, like everyone who knows everyone who went to Tennessee or is a Tennessee fan, they think they are it's Alabama, Clemson, Tennessee. Like, they think they are elite, and they have not won anything, but they get they have a stadium that seats 103,000 people. They have the gravest fan base. I've got to give credit to their fans, but they just cannot get it right. And they keep spending money and money on coaches. They brought in Alabama's defensive coordinator from two years ago, Jeremy Pruitt. He went 5-7 and seven last year. Paid him, I think he's like the fifth highest paid coach in, in football. They brought in their new offensive coordinator, Jim Chaney. He makes $1.5 million as the offensive Defensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator is Derek Ansley. He makes a million. Their strength and conditioning coach makes seven hundred fifty thousand. Like they have the highest paid coach, I think, besides Alabama in the in Clemson in the country. And so they bring Georgia State in. And Georgia State, <laughs> they have never beaten the Power Five team since they launched the program in two thousand ten. But two thousand nine, they didn't have team play football. They were two and ten last year. They lost their last seven games, and one of their two wins came against Kennesaw State. And uh, uh, just an, it's the fact that they lost 38-30. I mean, they beat Tennessee 38-30. And they were paid – and Tennessee paid Georgia State $950,000 to play in the game. And SE teams had an 82 straight games as a, as a favorite, uh, it's 25 points or more to win. Uh, and they, they broke that streak. I mean, they were, I think Tennessee was like a 28-point favorite in the game or 30-point favorite, and they ended up losing. You know, it's funny you bring up uh, Tennessee. I, obviously, I went to college in, in Tennessee, not at UT. Um, but I thought it was just me that, that thought that, that they really think every year that they're the best team going in. And you're, they haven't done anything since T. Martin, you know, when, when they won the uh, national championship, which was 15 years ago. But yeah, every year, and, and, and I will, you know, you said rabid fan base, and they are. And it's... Uh, the entire city shuts down. It's what I imagine Green Bay is like on, on a Sunday. On, on a Saturday, Knoxville is like a ghost town. Everybody is either at the game or watching. But they really act like they are the cream of the crop when it comes to football. And they haven't done anything in forever, I. Yeah, they, it was, they haven't done anything. They've now had Lane Kiffin as their coach, Jeremy Pruitt as a coach. I mean, they keep trying to bring coaches in, rotating. I mean, Jeremy Pruitt could be fired, like, tomorrow. Like, if he was fired <laughs> tomorrow, I wouldn't be surprised. They're trying everything. It's nothing works. And it's like, it's funny to watch this team, but, but every year their expectations are so high. It's like, this year Tennessee's back. This year Tennessee's going to be elite. And they just keep getting worse, not better. And that's what I think is funny about that. And then just to mention a couple other teams, Boise State beats Florida State. And, again, that's, Florida State's another one of those teams that you're like, okay, this year we got it. We figured out. We fixed this. We fixed that. Everything's better. And Boise State travels the whole way. Look what Boise State had to do. This game was supposed to be in, in uh, Jacksonville to play in Jacksonville, but because of the storm, they had to move it, and they had to move it up to go play in Tallahassee. So now they're playing a home game when they weren't expecting to play. Much earlier, they fly across the country, and what do they do? They still beat Florida State 36-31. Ira, uh, before we wrap this up, let's talk a little bit of fantasy. You know, I mentioned uh, earlier I got my draft tonight, and this is why I, I, I'll never get people that draft in, like, August, because things change so rapidly in the NFL. LaShawn McCoy... All reports are that he's looking pretty good at, at Bill's camp. They cut him, and he has the choice to go to the Chargers or KC. He decides to uh, uh, reunite with Andy Reid in Kansas City. Do you, are you giving LaShawn McCoy a shot here to kind of redeem himself after just an awful season last year back with his old coach? Do you think he's going to play a role in this offense, or is he just going to end up being you know, the, uh, the third-string running back? This is the problem I have. Everybody wants to draft running backs in fantasy early. I, because it's not really McCoy. 
it's Williams. It's Damian Williams. Yeah. It's their running back who everyone thought for, looked great for Kansas City last year. They're like, well, okay, he seems to have this open up, like this, this should be his job. And, and now it's going to be a share. Everywhere you look around the league, it's like a running back share. There are how many teams, which we might have mentioned before, McCafferty in, in Carolina, Barkley, uh, Elliott, uh, David Johnson. There, there's so few, four or five, maybe Le'Veon Bell Jets. There's like five or six running backs that you'd say, look, they're going to get, they're going to be the running, they're going to catch, they'll, they'll be the running backs. Everyone else is in a timeshare, and to judge these timeshares is going to be hard. And I think Kansas City, if there wasn't a timeshare, now it is a timeshare. I don't think no. I think McCoy is going to be the second or third running back. But then that hurts Williams. So someone like me was thinking, you know what? I'm going to draft Williams. He's going to be I'm in the fifth or sixth round. Now I don't know how good that pick is. So I think that's what makes fantasy so much difficult this year because you don't just have. But whereas with wide receivers, look, I know Michael Thomas is a great wide receiver for New Orleans. I know he's going to catch balls. I know Juju Smith-Schuster is going to catch him. So I. When I draft these players, I'm more comfortable drafting my wide receivers because I know they're going to be stars. I know what they're going to put every week. You draft these running backs that are in these times, you're like, well, I think he's going to get more yards. I think he's going to be it. But you think it, but then some games he's not. So I think, it's, it's, I think the safest bet in fantasy is to draft, draft wide receivers early. Yes, if you don't have one of those first six picks where you do get the Saquon Barkleys and the Christian McCaffreys, I think you go for the DeAndre Hopkins, you know, that level in the first round or the Julio, because like you said, you know what you're getting week in and week out. When I started doing fantasy in the early 2000s, that, you know, it was still a running league then, and there was probably 15 running backs that got 20-plus touches a game. Now, like you said, if you get 12 touches, that's a lot in some of these backfields. Um, and, you know, bringing back the Chiefs, they, they just drafted Darwin Thompson, who looks good. So this is a mess of a backfield. Damian Williams was going to be one of my keepers, and now I'm really debating maybe going with someone else just for that reason. Um, keeping it with running backs for a second, you'd think we see Ezekiel Elliott or Melvin Gordon at starting the season or at any point this season? Well, I, I, I don't think we're going to see Gordon start. And I think because I think that that's the, the running backs, Eckler and Jackson is, uh, are going to be the running backs for San Diego. I, I think they're going to trade Gordon. Uh, but Elliott looks like they're going to sign. I mean, that, I think Dallas is going to get that deal done. I, I, it's just, it's, it has to get done. He's, so, he's, a, he's the vital component to that team. They want to win the Super Bowl. Uh, I just, whatever. I, again, some of these teams, like the Steelers, when they were, when they were negotiating against Le'Veon Bell, when it comes down to a million or more, does he deserve the million more? Do you want to pay it? Is he, let him win the negotiation. Save the million somewhere else. Like when you, when you're, with all the distraction that goes on with this, it's like spend the money, get Elliot in. I know it causes other problems, but just get it done. Like get him the money and worry about it later. I, I just put, kick the can down the road a little with the salary cap. I know Elliot's probably asking for far too much, and you want to be fiscally responsible, but the season's about to start, and you have a lot to accomplish this year, and just figure out. You can save I don't know, cut your punter. I mean, just something, save some money somewhere else, but you, you got to get Elliott in camp. Yeah, not in camp. You got to have a game start game one. I I will give Jerry Jones some credit for actually handling this pretty well. Normally he's a, a little bit of a hothead, and you know he's a, he's like a wild card. He's been very tame in this situation. I got to give him a little bit of credit for for standing his ground and and kind of going with the route of you know we are here to play football, and if if he's not out there, it's next man up, and that's mature for, from Jerry Jones. Um, before we get to where you're headed this week, I got a funny story about where I'm probably headed this week. So I have my nephew. My little nephew loves baseball. He's coming into town from Carolina. I'm like, oh, maybe the Marlins are home. Maybe, uh, you know, I'll take him down there. 
the Royals are in town. The, the Marlins versus the Royals. He really can't get much worse than that. Still going to go, but, I mean, of all the weeks to have that matchup, uh, not very good. I Where are you headed? Um, well, I'm definitely – Penn State Buffalo is on Saturday and uh, the U.S. Open. And then the question will be on Sunday if I watch – if it's Federer Nadal in the U.S. Open Finals, I'll have to choose that over Steelers Patriots, which is painful to say. But I can still watch the game. But I wouldn't go. But I could not miss seeing Federer Nadal live. That would be historic of proportion. So uh, hopefully we'll have Federer Nadal uh, finals, and we're going to get some tennis. If that happens, we're definitely going to have a guest on next Monday who's going to talk about tennis because that'll be one of the most historic matches of all time. And on the opening day of the NFL, and and you love the opening day of the NFL. I mean, it's like so much. I, that's why I'm mad at tennis. Like, I'm mad that tennis has their national championship game on the opening day of the NFL. Like, move it to Tuesday. Like, don't put it Monday against Monday Football. Move the Federal Nadal. Like, have that match on Tuesday night. I think tennis, I think golf got it right. Golf said, look, we are playing. I don't care if we have Tiger Woods, we have Brooks Koepka, we're in McElroy. We're never beating football. And the people who watch golf like football. So we're going to stop it a week before Labor Day. So they literally have it. That's it. It's over. Golf season's over. Goodbye. See you golf in January. And that's a smart move. But tennis, they, wanna, they have this for two weeks. This is when the window is. But for their finals, they don't really fight against football. Now, Saturday, they fight against some college football. But on, for their championship match to be, go against the first day of the NFL, like, they're insane. They are completely insane to put that against the NFL. You know, Ira, maybe um, maybe the NHL's commissioner, Gary Bettman, is running running the U.S. Open because that, he seems to do everything he can to make people not watch his sport, and that just seems like that's something right out of his, uh, his well, bag of tricks. Fans, like, at the Open, people will be there, and the tennis fans, but if you're trying to build your sport, and you're trying to build it saying, okay, this is the national U.S. Open. Nobody who's a big – everybody is watching football. That first week is the highest re- week of the season for NFL fans to watch it. That's why the NFL doesn't even start on Labor Day. They start the week after Labor Day. They used to start on Labor Day. Now they start the week after Labor Day. Like every other league seems to get this right, and then tennis puts their final, that, which could be a match that everyone would want to see, uh, and they put it on uh, on Sunday at four o'clock against when everyone's watching. I mean, they start the final when the when the one o'clock games are not even over yet uh, from the football. So it's crazy. Yeah, and everybody knows the most exciting part of. Uh, football Sunday for me is as all those one o'clock games wrap up and you're watching Red Zone Channel and it's just going crazy, you know, uh, last minute endings. That's at four o'clock. I know exactly where I am every Sunday and it's not going to be uh, watching tennis. It's going to be watching those games wrap up. We are out of time though. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.